Hi, my name is Marquise Hill. I'm an intern at Anti-Violence Partnership. I'm here today with Kareem Brown, the YVO Program Director at Anti-Violence Partnership. We're located at 2000 Hamilton Street, Suit 204, Philadelphia, PA. Phone number is 215-567-6776. We're interviewing Brother Rafiq Friend. Can you introduce yourself a little bit for the people? Sure, how you doing? Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, that could take a little while. Well, I'm a lifelong resident here in the city of Philadelphia. City of brother loves city affection. I grew up here. Went away from school down in Florida, Tallahassee, this historically black university, FAMU, home of the Ratners and the Marching 100 band, you know, the baddest band in the land that taught everybody else how to do steps. <laughs> but, you know, that was a long time ago. So, I uh, come from a pretty large family. I got six brothers. One just recently passed away, and I got a mercy one. And uh, I have one sister who's a baby sister. And mom and dad's still alive. Thank God, dad's 90, mom's 84, but man's 64 years. So, uh, you know, come from strong roots, you know what I mean? Got a strong foundation, you know, family. You know, that's something missing right now. We might get into that a little later, but I come from a background where, you know, at the time it was like families were intact. You know, there wasn't this whole thing now where we have these fragmented families. So I come from a family of that, you know, rather large families, eight of us, mom and dad. Thank God, like I said, mom and dad still alive. So, um, of course, I was uh, educated with the public school system, nothing special, you know what I mean? Dad worked at you know, a factory, basically, Western House, you know, a little more than a factory, but he worked for Western House, and my mother worked for the University of Pennsylvania, so, well, nothing special, you know, a lot of love, got a lot of love. But uh, as I, you know, evolved in life, you know, set my own way, my own path now, uh, I've been married now 26 years. Out of there, I have two sons. One's 26 and one's 21. They're still at home. And I was married previously, and from that union, I have one son. I have uh, also a couple of daughters from marriage. So I got a group of five that are mine, that I claim to be mine. And I have uh, a whole bunch of grandchildren. I forget the number because there's so many of them. But um, I now have evolved, and like I said, you know, I have my own life now. And I'm trying to replicate my parents, and then at the same time, I'm trying to do it a little better than even they did. So uh, I'm now working for the city of Philadelphia. I've worked for the city for the last 20 years. Uh, I don't know if we can get the specifics. And what do you do here? Okay. So. I'm what they call a, a uh, tip staff, okay? There are two capacities with tip staff here. You have what you call your judicial tip staff, which I worked in the capacity for, that you work for one judge, and you work for that judge exclusively. I did that for 18 years with just one judge. So for 18 years, my title was judicial tip staff. Now I'm in a general tip staff. That means I work for everybody. I can work for any judge. I'm not exclusive to one judge, so those are the two positions. 
I've held the one previously, 18 years, and one judge, and with this system, which is called the Common Plea Civil Trial Division, I don't work for any one judge. I work for any judge that needs my help. So what I do is jury trials. So I pick that jury, and then I regulate. I, everything associated with the trial that I manage. So I manage the jury's time to come in, time to leave. You know, basically, you know, everything around the jury, and then the judge, I coordinate everything. I coordinate everything in here, make sure every, all the bells and whistles street. The reporters here, the court reporter, Nicole, She's a court reporter, and then you make sure the attorneys are here, and the clients are here, and you got everything you need. That's uh, so. So, what type of um, cases do you hear, um, and have you heard from working over your time here? Do you see traffic tickets? Do you see people suing people? Do you see murder cases? Like, what types of cases have you been involved in? Okay, everything from the hooter to the tutor. I did it all. I seen it all. Murder and mayhem, rape, robbery, yeah, ag assaults, drug dealing, fraud, you name it, I've seen it on that side. Then when we say the criminal side, this is the civil side, but primarily you're dealing with lawsuits, okay, car accidents, malpractice, medical malpractice, um, contract disputes, you know. Civil. It's this is about money on this side, on the other so, side. So on the criminal side, over your eighteen years on that side, what have been some of the themes? If you could think about a specific theme or trend that you can maybe recall on the criminal side, what kind of trends do you remember? Oh man, uh, trends. Meaning like a specific type of a group of alleged criminals. Uh, or certain types of crimes more mm -hmm. common, like in the city of Philadelphia, what types of themes have you noticed on the crime side? I like the way you pose that question, themes. Because the themes I saw was the themes we all see all across the country. Mostly African Americans being processed in the criminal system to be ultimately uh, placed in uh, the penal system uh, merely as a means to an end, as far as I'm concerned. It's just like, you're worth money, and the value I see in you is more there than here. I'm not going to give you an even footing out here, so to speak, because I can get money over there, because we all know that the, uh, the prison industrial complex is real, and people are being put in jail. And here's another reason why you, you, know, you see this stuff going on, as far as like what I saw. At the disparities, like the way that our people are viewed, the inconsideration sometimes, and even by your own people, that we reach the high level of you know jurors don't give you that consideration. Like there could be some extenuating circumstances that led you to the behavior that it did. But the law, you broke it, you gotta pay. Where if you got some people from other ethnicities, may not be viewed so strongly. It's like, okay, we understand. Johnny didn't really mean to knock the dude upside the head and take his wallet. But, you know, uh, Rafik over there, that guy, you know, he's always about something, you know. Not real considering that Rafik may come from a broken home. You know, Rafik may not be eating right. Rafik, you know, may not got no love. Could have been a lot of things that caused Rafik to end up in the condition that he did. And 
So I think that for the most part, I see the big trend is the processing of a specific kind of a group. I would say from 18 to 30. People that, you know, childbearing. And I think there's some other underlying things that's going on there, I suppose, to just take making the money, because they make a lot of money on uh, inmates. You know, like $30,000 per inmate in the state. And then you got, like, private prisons now that's taking over, and their whole agenda is just to populate the prison. There's no, you know, they got what they call a correction officer. What's he correcting? He's correcting his paycheck, and that's it. He co collect them. So we say that correction. He collecting his paycheck, and that's about it. Nobody's there in the correct behavior, for real, for real. You got to figure that out. It's a quagmire of uh, stuff going on inside the prisons. You know, you can get just about anything in there. I mean, not just about, you can't get anything. You know, even weapons is a little hard, but everything else. Right. So, like, for us, in our work, we work with a lot of young people. Yeah. Um, specifically in schools and in community centers around the city. Mm. Um, and we talk to uh, young people that have been victims of crime mm -hmm. and that are still suffering from different traumatic effects because of the crime and, and the broken homes and the broken communities. Mm. Because you mentioned earlier about how when you were growing up, mm. there was less uh, fractured families. Correct. Could you talk a little bit about then and how it was then and how you feel like the broken neighborhoods or families or communities is, is a, a contributing to the increase in crime among young people? Wow. So... It's really something that I don't think people really consider as what some of the problems, a lot of the problems are today. Because when I grew up, we did have um, what they call a nuclear family. This is a family and a mom and a dad. And I mean, all my friends, pretty much the house was the same. Mom and dad was there. Even dad wasn't all like, like that. You know, some of my uh, friends' dads, they drank. I know one, they gambled a lot, you know, at the, at the racetrack. But they was like dads, and a dad was a dad. They looked different, dressed different. And we was over here, and they were over there. And they were adults, and we were children. And it was like a real defined line there. It's like you didn't go around certain conversations. They could look at you and discipline you. Imagine this look. We never talked back. That was a real no-no. You get your head knocked off, you know, saying something back to your parent, you know, unlike today. But uh, it was just a line of respect there from everybody. You know, everybody, you know, our neighborhood, you know, was governed like that, you know. I mean, Mrs. Truman, she could go down and talk on you. Still, you know, hey, listen, she could actually walk up on you on the corner if you were going out on Swizzy, you know, you know, I mean, you getting down. You talking about a neighbor? Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm talking about somebody else's mom. Mm -hmm. She had that level of respect with that. All right, we was doing our thing. You know, we be sucking down some brews, maybe a bottle of wine, smoking some of them reefers. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, and all that. So Miss Glimmy coming down the street, boy, you be looking for a mint. You trying to straighten yourself up, man? Put that thing out. Here right. come Miss Glenn. Right. You know what I mean? And you know she's. Walking by, man, look with my eyes, is they red, mm -hmm. you know? You trying to open them up as wide as you can, trying to fool them, but she know. She just walked by and smiled, y'all all right? Yes, Mr. Glenn, we perfectly fine. 
<laughs> high as hell off that bridge and that reefer. That's what y'all <laughs> But it was a different thing there. Cause, and that was the structure of the, the family. The family was still very important. The mom and the dad was mom and dad. So now, compared to what we got going on now, whew, it's like the exact opposite. A flip. Where children are very disrespectful. Very. I mean, it was a time when, you know, black children didn't do stuff. White kids kind of got away with stuff. They could curse it with their parents, could drink with their parents, and stuff like smoke. You know, they did stuff with their parents that we dare not do, especially talk back. That's the phenomenon that's really just blowing my mind is that the, the youth of the day within the African-American community is just as brazen and wild as the counterparts. And we wasn't like that. The lines were defined explicitly like, whites were over here, blacks were over here, and we didn't cross boundaries. When you say that, because some, you know, we got different types of uh, audience that might listen to this podcast. So did you also grow up in a time where the neighborhoods was less integrated and it was more segregated? Was that also a theme when you were growing up? Yeah. I grew up in what they call a black neighborhood. What was interesting is, is that I did have white friends when I was in uh, school, because we still had whites that went to our school. I had really good friends when I was uh, in uh, elementary school, and uh, we were on the safety patrol together and that kind of thing. So I think that even though the lines were defined, clearly defined, I grew up in a neighborhood where we were the third black family to move into the neighborhood. And so that was a real shocker for those people. You know, I don't know what you know white flight means, but when blacks start moving in, whites start moving out, and that's what happened to us. So me and my brothers got called nigger every day. Every day. Because we went to school in all white neighborhoods. So we walked down the street, you know, nigger, like regular. You know, ignore that stuff until you got closed in. And deal with all six of us. <laughs> Remember, baby, lock on. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But my brother Paul can beat all them dudes, and you know. But anyway, uh, very integrated neighborhoods, very defined, and it was no other groups here. Like no, the Hispanics was down Hunting Park, the Asians was down in Chinatown. You know, it was mostly the Jews and Italians that was controlling the stores and the, the commerce within our communities, right? So uh, you had. The white people, you know, that was in my neighborhood, but eventually they kind of stayed on South Philly side of Grays Ferry. And uh, our neighborhood became primarily African-American and the white flight took, took place. But uh, the lines were very defined, unlike like that, everybody just everybody. You know? So what was uh, the most common crime, if you can remember, that kind of took place among young people in your day? Oh. The most common kind of crime was just probably this, you know, like petty theft robberies, you know, stuff like that, stealing. You know, most people, because, you know what I mean, we gang war. You know, if somebody, during the gang wars back in my day, when I got shot twice, so I'm doing first-hand stuff here, I ain't lying. It's for real. Back in our day, man, if somebody got killed, it wasn't like no teddy bear thing come up. The whole neighborhood be shut down. Nobody come out. It's like the whole neighborhood be mourning. Like, did you hear last night? Them boys such such got killed. What? And then your mom and everybody be like trying to keep you in the house and 
you don't really want to go out because you figured if you did one of them, then they coming back to get you, and you know them. You see them riding around the car looking for your ass. You know what I mean? You see them. They like riding around the car looking for your ass, and you so all that hanging out and all that. You just you in the house. Miles them really got to tell you to come in the house. You say, you in the night? You in early tonight? Yeah, I watch the TV. Yo, it won't be no way. I'm just gonna stay in the house tonight, mom. Right. Yeah, because such got killed. So, you know, it was a whole different thing with, uh, you know. So, that. as it relates to, because you, you know, this is important information because sometimes when we talk to some of the young people in the schools, mm-hmm. they don't rem- they don't have no knowledge about what you're talking about. Wow. They only see communities and families the way they exist right now for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. They have no knowledge about that things were different. They just know they was born, and the communities are the way they are, the families are the way they are. That's what they know. And then, you know, they have to deal with the effects, mm-hmm. the traumas that they exist in. So it's important for them to understand that it was a development, right. that changes happen, things happen for it to get to this point. So in your estimation, from your experience, your life experience, what you deal with in the courtrooms and have it seen, what do you think is some possible solutions or things that can curve this epidemic of violence, crime, and traumatization? Okay, in terms of solutions, the first thing that you've got to make a great connection with is our creator. That's number one. See, that was important to us growing up. It wasn't that I was a Muslim like I am now, but I was... Um, aware of God because mm-hmm. my mom and them Christians and they took us to church but still the idea of what God was was real it was a real feeling it was something that you felt like was really there and so if your mother couldn't get you to do anything if she said God will get you you felt like that's for real that really happened to me and I think that's going there. I think that's like really going. I think that it's a big, 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 big problem for us right now because they took it out to schools. You know, we used to pray in school. You know, we, prayer was important. You know, making that connection with God was important. So how we do that, you know, as a tribe, a community, how we get back to that sense of there is something we have a higher, I mean, that we have a responsibility to, are accountable to that's higher than us. And we have to kind of convey that, you know. Let, that, me, let me interject this point and yeah. you finish what you were saying about solutions. Because oftentimes, you know, we in the schools, uh, that nuclear structure or that system is gone. Recently, we've seen uh, with the swearing in of the first Muslim representative, uh, uh, Movita uh, Harris, who we also interviewed on this podcast. You can check that episode out on our uh, website. All right. Um, She's good before people. she got elected, mm-hmm. and we seen at the swearing in the lady gave the Christian Jesus speech, right? Quote, so to speak, right. right? And you know that brought up some issues about uh, interfaith relations sure. or people that's atheists, mm-hmm. and and you know because people got varying beliefs, and some people don't believe in God at all, right? Um. How would you say, okay, if you got a young person who don't believe in a God or you got a young person that has a different faith 
from you, are you saying that then maybe there's no way for them to get to a solution or healing without believing in the creator? I think that it's important. Uh, in terms of identification, I mean, me a Muslim, Jew, Christian, Buddhist, agnostic, whatever you claim to be, that's just the roadmap for you to travel on. I think the first thing that I do with not just young people, but people in general, is trying to raise their consciousness. Is there a possibility of something governing all of this what we see? And it's kind of once you reach there first before I say be a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Buddhist, it's like are you aware that there's a sun out there and it stays right where it's at? There's a moon out there and it stays right where it's at. And they both serve this place. And that not that kind of interesting that we're spinning round and round on our axis and we don't fall off. And that there's gravity, you know, and then there's perfect air for perfect for us. You see, so I'm trying to lead you to a place of being consciously aware that you think it's a possibility that something outside of this, you know, or something internal that controls all this, that put it into play. So that's what I kind of want to say. When I start talking about what we call religion, I want to raise your consciousness first before we can even go into talking about, you know, uh, something specific. So I think I'm always real comfortable personally how to raise the consciousness as opposed to say be a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim because then that's specifics. But with this is just like get you aware first mm -hmm. that you got a belief system. And then I can teach you some other stuff. But before that, you know, because I think a lot of people today, if this, the belief system is weak because, you know, of the materialism and uh, the overwhelming, uh, what they call the information overload, the technical the devices and all that kind of stuff I think it gets in the way of you you know even finding yourself it's like you, you ain't even got time to breathe because your bell went off on your phone your switch went off on your phone you, you know whatever it is that calling your attention it's mostly devices you know you're not being called because you ain't quiet you can't even hear yourself think it's like how much time do you give yourself to think you're in your car right do you turn something on or do you just ride around don't listen to nothing like me I won't listen to nothing. I ride around for an hour. And you know, I found out that I didn't even do that consciously. I just stopped doing it. And I love music. And I got all kinds of stuff on my phone I can listen to. And I got stuff on it. I, but because I kind of, I don't know, we got pushed almost into this stay away from too much information. Because I'm always trying to find the God in me. I'm always trying to find that center in me. And I'm a practicing Muslim been one for a lot of years. But I have strong ties to people in Christianity, people with strong ties to Judaism. You know, I even got a guy out in New York, the agnostic, you know, made him cool. Because that's his, that's what he believed. So as far as getting uh, young people to make that connection, you know, really, uh, it really comes down to me. Uh, what you really saying as far as like, are you going rituals? Are you going tradition? Are you just saying, hey, listen, Raising their consciousness to them. I think with young people right now today, I think they need to get away from like city life for a minute. And like, I think these retreats will be good. Weekend retreats where they just out away from all city life, you know, and maybe detach them from their phone for a minute. And just tell them to just get in touch with themselves. Hear the bird, hear the wind, hear the quiet. You know, hear the nightlife, you know, not <laughs> nightlife, you know what I mean? Oh, it's not God. Not that. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about what? the crickets, the water is running. You know, I was a boy scout. I like that kind of stuff, man. Kind of miss it. 
you know, being in that in nature, because I think that right now what is happening is what you see is an unnatural product. You don't have a natural product. So if you can say one bit of advice to a young person that may is from the communities we talking about, destabilized community, no nuclear families, a lot of crime, a lot of poverty. Um, and I guess maybe if you could tell them two to three things that they could do to move in a more positive direction, what kind of advice would you give them? The first thing I said, listen, what I really, really, I feel very, very, very strongly about is the first thing I have to get them in touch with the God self, their consciousness. I got to get them aware that, look, something else is operating beyond all this. Expect something of you. You didn't just put you here and put you up behind here in America and, you know, people all over the world in places that ain't so uh, good. And here you are in one of the better places. And even though you might think that your condition is in, you know, my dad, my mom, whatever the case may be, might seem difficult for you. It's somebody in some foreign country or some third world country that's doing way worse than you. They don't even have nothing. A lot of the children maybe got sold into trafficking. You know what I mean? Uh, anything could be going on with them. You growing up in an environment, it, it's like not as balanced, but you still got a shot. But you got to know there's a creator. And I first got to stab my relationship with that. So that's the first advice I give them. The second thing I want to say to them is limit the amount of time you stay on your device because it has a control uh, a factor to it. Don't get so caught up with the bells, the swish, swishes, the dings, because those are things that are by design that they really have built in to control human behavior. I heard it firsthand from a guy from Silicon Valley. Said he quit because he said the bells, the dings, and the swishes are designed to control human behavior. And if you look around, you see that's sort of the second thing I tell them is, you know, limit the amount of time or you're on it. And then when you are on it, limit Instagram, limit Facebook. But you can look at other things that are relevant to empowering yourself and knowledge and things of that nature. That's great if you're going to use it for that. But limit the time that you're on that, on that device. The third thing I was tell them is, though, the people that you surround yourself is very important. Who you want to be, that's who you better find that group. Because if you want to be over here with the cool cats and everybody getting down, doing their thing, that's pretty much what you're going to become. You got anything else you want to add? Or eggs? Um, basically answered everything I had. Okay. Um, you got any closing remarks? Hey, man. Yeah, I got some closing remarks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you like this, bro. You know, when you look at our overall picture, right, I am basically a solution-oriented person. And so I, I, I like that last question because you posed the question as, what are some of the solutions? And I tried to offer some that I thought would be effective. But one of the things that I didn't mention that is very important to us as a community is this. We have no economic strength at all, okay, uh, collectively. I mean, we make a trillion dollars or GPA and it's it, our gross natural product is something. Ah, well, trillion, whatever it is, it's huge. 
we're bigger than some countries as far as our collective wealth, but we don't work together. So we have very fragmented communities, you know, because we don't have any economic strength. About eight years ago, I figured, you know, what I mean, I need to start doing something, trying to help us out as a people, and I found this opportunity. You know where I uh, could lower the cost of people's energy bill, and I could make money. I thought this was great. Oh man, we as a people um, could take this, and we could work together and build wealth. And one of the things I've learned over eight years of doing this, this is my own business. This is online, and. Uh, after eight years of doing it, I find that our people are, you know, pretty lazy. And they don't want to really do nothing. And they, they got to still ask. I might get nothing against reparations, but we didn't get 40 acres and a mule yet. So, uh, you know, and when we get the 40 acres and a mule, then maybe the reparations, they make a, a bundle deal. I don't know what the deal is with that, but that's quite the challenge. But from opportunities are everywhere here in America, and I think that we sleep them. There's an acronym that says, why are we poor? This word, P-O-O-R, poor. Why are we poor? We are poor because we are people, P, overlooking oh, opportunities repeatedly. Poor, people overlooking opportunities repeatedly. So we gotta figure out how we gonna generate collective wealth. And I mean, and then be able to move it generationally because none of us seem to wake up with the silver spoon in our mouth. We gotta work hard all we do. We the first in our family, you know, to become something. All right, so I'm gonna wrap this thing up. I'd like to thank you for your time. Um, really appreciate it. Hey, Marquise, it's been fun, man. It's a pleasure. You know, anytime you need me, you know, just, you know, you got my number, I'd be more than happy to come back and uh, share some more with your amazing audience. I'd like to say to you and your, and your co-host that uh, I really do appreciate the uh, invitation. Take care, folks. Nice talking to you.